there's so many times where I see the advice of great managers get out of the way, great leaders get out of the way. I'm sorry, the definition of leadership is providing direction, right? You're gonna tell me that you're gonna get out of the way? Like, how do you delegate leadership? <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense. It's nonsensical. Welcome to the Authentically Successful Show. I'm Carol Schultz, founder and CEO of Vertical Elevation, a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm. We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. Joining me today is Luke Knese, founder and executive chairman of Puppet, which he founded in 2005. A recovering sysadmin himself, Puppet helps sysadmins spend less time firefighting and doing menial work and more time shipping great software to their customers. He raised $87 million in venture capital along the way and grew the company to more than 500 employees. He's a leader in DevOps, IT, open source, and freemium business models, and has helped other startups through advising, consulting, and board membership. His long-term interests are software that helps people, making better founders, the intersection of organizations and economics, and improving inclusion in the information economy. He's currently writing, researching, advising, and consulting. Luke's most recent venture, Clickety, which he founded in 2019, closed up shop two and a half years later, and we'll talk about why that was. Luke, welcome. This has been a long time coming. I've been trying to get you on the show for, I think, almost a year now. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm sorry it's taken so long, but it's it's been a complicated and, and I think it's been a complicated year for everybody, but my particular forms of complication have made it hard to, to get me on the, can, on, on the mic. Good. Well, you know, better late than never. Uh, let's start and talk a little bit about Clickety first. Um, tell us about that company and what happened to have you uh, close up shop in such a short period of time. Yeah, the the goal of the company was to help me with the problem that I, I struggled with the most as a CEO, and that was uh, people. Um, you know, your, your whole life is built around people, and yeah. I came from... All the roles I've had previously as a sysadmin, as a developer, mm-hmm. we're very tools oriented, right? If you're a sysadmin, there are a ton of great tools you can use. If you're a developer, there are billions of great tools you can use. And then suddenly I'm a CEO and it's like, oh, by the way, you have to do all of this using Post-its and uh, Moleskine <laughs> notebooks. It's like, well, I, I don't want that. I want right. something much better. I want my I want my computers to think for me. And it's like, no, I'm sorry, that's not an option. And so I, the whole time I was CEO, I was looking for things to help me do my job better, things that I could dump my brain into at the end of the day or at the end of the week, especially, and I could show back up on Monday and just like load the whole thing back in again. Um, and especially, you know, capture state so that I can stop a problem in the middle, come back later and not have to spend 20 minutes trying to remember what the heck I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, for whatever reason, I have a, a real aversion to physical artifacts like i i feel really really comfortable in the digital world and when i write things on paper it, it makes me itchy it just there's something about there being only one copy or something i don't know exactly mm-hmm. um so i started clickety essentially to build a productivity tool around people so something that allowed me to as, as a simple example if you're hiring we're used to using um tools to help us track lists of candidates and stuff like that. Applicant um, tracking systems or something like that, right? Yeah. But what if you're not hiring, but you're trying to find a contractor to build cabinets for you? Mm-hmm. Well, like suddenly that applicant tracking system doesn't seem quite so appropriate anymore. Right. But you still have to call five or 10 or 20 people and mm-hmm. you still have to track, you know, where are they in the process? So what tool can you use to track, you know, to write down, like, what are the steps to hiring a cabinet person and how many people are in that process? <laughs> Interesting. Uh, at scale at Clickety, I had my last fundraising round. I was using Clickety to fundraise, and I had 350 people on a board spread across 15 different columns. And it was something where I could check in every single day and really, really easily get a snapshot of what's going on, who am I talking to, who have I talked to most recently, who mm-hmm. do I need to reach out to today. And at the time, I had, yes, I was using this for fundraising, but I was using this for five or six other problems that relate to making decisions around people. Right? And how many times does, not the average person, but how many times does a leader or CEO find themselves having to make a decision about 
who gets promoted? When did I last talk to this person? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, who do I need to go see in person next time? Um, who do I bring on as an advisor? There are all these questions about people and there are no tools to help us with them. So my goal with Clickety was to build that. Unfortunately, um, a couple things went wrong. And I'd say the dominant thing that went wrong was I, I don't know if I discovered I had some or they surfaced or whatever, but it turns out I have some significant uh, long-term health issues that prevented me from continuing to work on it. Um, I discovered a heart problem that's not dangerous to me, but it does uh, limit what I can do in, in some ways. And it seems to be being treated with medicine right now, but it's not always clear. Mm -hmm. I've got some other things going on that I'm not quite sure what the problem is. And mm -hmm. as I struggled to raise my second round, and I really did struggle to raise it, um, I was going to have to do an inside round. And the stress of the inside round uh, combined with my health, I just looked up and I was like, the lines crossed at some point. Mm -hmm. It was like, I can tell what this business is going to require from me and I can't right. deliver that. Right. And so rather than going out and raising another half million or million or two million and making promises and then trying to keep those promises, it's like, I'm going to fail at this and I don't want to throw away more money, more of other people's money. And I think it'd be the wrong bet for me. I, 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 I spent a significant chunk of my time at Clickety, I spent a year working out of a recliner because I couldn't sit at a desk. I had to stay horizontal to for my brain to work, essentially. Um, and it was just like, can I can I do that for another year? Can I do that for another two years? And the answer was functionally, you know, maybe, but that was the wrong bet. And so fall of last year, I decided to close the business out. And it was mm -hmm. obviously sad. I missed the product all the time because there are three other products you might consider using that I know of that the the high level marketing bit sounds really really similar. One of them just last week shipped a feature that finally maybe will allow me to use it like I used Clickety. But you know, they're all trying to build something that sounds similar but is actually quite different. So um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I hope somebody goes on and does it. But uh, at this point, you know, the thing I was trying to do is still years away. It looks like. Yeah. Well, and you know, I think you say you make a really important point around you know self care. And the importance of that, right? When I was a puppet, I, I ran myself ragged all the time. I'm sure. And I learned to like ride this edge. Mm -hmm. I, I really distinctly remember realizing at night, like, because I, I had this habit, because I, I had young kids. When we raised founding, I had 10-month-old twins, which I recommend separating those in the future. If you can have babies and the most intense learning and work periods of your life <laughs> different at different times. times I would say that's a wise move. Yeah. Um, but we just, you know, whatever. This is how it went. Mm -hmm. um, and I distinctly remember, you know, and my goal was to get home in time for dinner. And what that meant was I worked a shorter day during the day. And then I, I you know, the kids would go to bed at 8 o'clock. And so I, right. you know, I would uh, do more email. Until midnight or, or something like that or, you know, right. whatever. Yeah. And I, I just remember realizing at some point, like, I can spend more time working. I can spend another hour and a half doing mm -hmm. email. But I guarantee you that if I get up in the morning... In 15 minutes after I've slept, I'll get more work done at a higher quality mm -hmm. than if I continue working tonight. And, and it's not, way. it's one of those like, I will do a thing that an external observer would say, yes, he worked. I replied to emails. I deleted emails. I made tasks. I completed mm -hmm. tasks. But if you were to actually observe the work done, you would see that all my emails were, I don't know, what do you think? Or um, let's talk about this next week. Or, you know, it's, it's like kicking a can down the road. I didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't cause things to get done. I didn't make things happen. I just acted. Right. Um, and so eventually I just, I, I learned to recognize that feeling in myself of like, hey, if you continue working, it's not going to have any value and it's going to cost me, it's going to cost you, right? Like it's going to hurt you and add no value to anybody else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you need to put your computer down. <laughs> you need to go away. And the worst example of that is I remember skipping out on a, a work event, not a, not a puppet event, but a, like a, an industry event. And I was just, I had been traveling or something and I was exhausted and I sat at a bar with my wife and I couldn't speak for an hour. And it was like, oh yeah, this is, I, it's a very good thing that I did not go to this event because like, what would I have done, right? I, maybe, either I would have not spoken there mm -hmm. or worse, I would have dragged even more energy that I didn't have mm -hmm. available. And then what, what would I have paid, how would I have paid for that later? Mm -hmm. So I learned to recognize those at Puppet because I ran myself on the edge for the entire 12 years I was there. I mean, I was on the edge of burnout and usually the wrong edge of burnout for the whole time. And so, you know, I've, I've had to be really conscious of it because I've, I've, I've made that mistake too many times. 
You know, it's funny. I was talking to a founder that that I know very, very well, um, who's invited me. He's just started a podcast. He's invited me to be on his podcast. Um, and it, it, he, we had a call scheduled for whatever day it was last week, and he had sent me an email. I had, I, I had told him, I, you know, I said, listen, I was in an accident. I'm working from bed. I need to do a phone call instead of a Zoom call. And he responded to me, and then when and then he called me a couple months later he's like what happened i thought we were supposed to have a call i said we were do you not remember the email that you that you said and said that that would be a call would be fine he goes oh he says did i send it like in the middle of the night <laughs> i said yes it came in it came in at 2 a.m <laughs> and he said to me you know i i he, he's always trying to figure out like different ways to work that are that are effective for him right it, you know at, at to your point you know, working all the time. And, and he says, I, it's like, I, I send stuff in the middle of the night and then I have no recollection of it. I'm like, well, then you need to stop working in the middle of the night. Yeah. Hey, doctor, it hurts when I do this. Uh, That's maybe right. Don't do that anymore. Yeah. Don't do that anymore. Exactly. So I think that, you know, you're making some, I mean, really, really, I think salient points that any founders or entrepreneurs listening really need to pay attention to which is you cannot, you know, he, he refers to it as, as, you know, being a founder is lonely AF. <laughs> it, I, right? I, I totally agree. And, and it often is. You're working a lot of hours. You're spend, you know, you spend a good bit of time by yourself, like especially if you're working, you know, from home um, at crazy hours. And, you know, by not taking care of your own needs, it's just not, it's not effective to building a successful company. I know for me, there's certain times where my brain works much better. And that's in the mornings. You know, I just, by the end of the day, I, I mean, I can maybe edit something, but I can't do any writing at all. Yeah. I mean, everyone's got their own circadian rhythm that, that their bodies work well on. And, you know, powering through it is a mm -hmm. great way to do shitty work and set a bad example for everyone around you. <laughs> exactly. You're, you're exactly right. So uh, let me ask you this, Luke. Um, did you have so so that that second round that you were was this seed round that you were that you were getting that you were going for that you decided not to yeah, get? Yeah, we probably called the first round a pre-seed and then the second one I was trying yeah, to do okay. a seed, but I got a hundred no's and the no's were all really similar. You know, they say uh, you know there's all these stories of you know oh you just need, you just need one person to say yes, but the no's were sufficiently similar that it it just did not seem like continuing to do the same thing was going to get an outcome. And plus I ran, I ran out of time, right? Like I, I fundraised for three months and I thought I started plenty earlier, but at some point you look up and you're like, look, I've got three weeks of cash and my team, you know, at the point I had four employees and it's like, I, I need to, you know, I, I can't keep telling them, you know, give me another month or whatever. So I, I had to shift modes at that point. Mm -hmm. What do you think was, was causing all the no's? Like what was, what was missing and was um, there anything missing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a couple of things. Um, now, obviously, I'm gonna, I've got a story to tell, and my story is biased. Um, mm -hmm. Now, the, the difference between my bias and everybody else's bias is obviously that I'm right. But beyond that... Um, we all like to be right. <laughs> right. So I'll just like say that up front. Like, I recognize that I have a perspective that I'm bringing, and my perspective right. is, you know, necessarily different, right? Mm -hmm. If I had the same perspective as everybody else, I wouldn't be a terribly good entrepreneur. Well... Um, and you operate through your own filters also. Right. I think it was yeah. fundamentally two things. Um, the first and the major reason why everyone said they said no, the most common reason, mm -hmm. was essentially that something that smells and sounds like this has been talked about a bunch of times. Um, and by that, I mean like a personal CRM type thing. Right. But I've used all those tools. I've talked about all those tools. And um, none of them were actually quite trying to do what I'm trying to do. Most mm -hmm. of them were glorified address books. They were like, how do I bring the address book into the modern age? Mm -hmm. And one of the foundational concepts behind Clickety is that the whole idea of the address book is obsolete. The thing we needed address books for in the 80s was literally where do I write down your address so that when I need it, I can find it. Where do I write down your phone number? Mm -hmm. Well, our phones do that for us really transparently right now. Mm -hmm. like that, that's not a hard problem. The hard problem is I'm a professional who regularly deals with 5,000 individual people on an annual basis, and on a weekly or monthly basis, I will deal with 100 to 200 individual people, 50 to 75% of whom might be completely new to me, but 50 to 75% might be people who I see once a year or three times a year. 
how do I ensure that I'm doing the right things with the right people at the right time? And how do I reduce the cost of decision-making around those people? Because as, as a CEO, 95% of what you do is decide, make decisions mm-hmm. about people, right? I'm not deciding about product. I'm deciding about who is going to decide about product. I'm not deciding right. about sales. Right. I'm deciding right. who is going to decide about sales. Mm-hmm. Where are my tools for making those decisions? And I could never successfully express to other people in a way that they got it how that was different from an address book. Well, yeah, that's interesting because as I was listening to you describe it, I'm thinking, well, this sounds like it's part CRM, right? And, and I, you know, I wonder, listening to you talk about this, if that's where the institutional capitalists were thinking, well, this is just another glorified CRM. Why do we need it? Nobody went there. Nobody um, went there. That's interesting. No, okay. Well, the reason nobody went there is that 100% of the people I talked to have tried to use their CRM to do this and none and of them can't. Work. They can't do it. Okay. Right? And so... In a lot of ways, you're right. The How I came to think of this is you need a more generic CRM. Because mm-hmm. if, if you try to use a CRM for this, try to use whether it's Salesforce or Copper or anything that, whatever, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. whether use the high end or the low end, and I've tried mm-hmm. them all, um, what you'll find is that CRM has a frame. And you're like, okay, I need to have a conversation with every member of my like director team, right? I've got 50 directors work at the company and I need to have a three-part conversation with each of them, right? I need to check in with them first mm-hmm. and then I need to have an intensive what's your mm-hmm. future look like and then I need to follow up, right? Yeah. And that's that's 50 people, three stages, 150 individual items that I need to go through, right? And that mm-hmm. machine is really hard, right? And of course, I can hand that to my EA and she can run that process, but mm-hmm. she's going to struggle too, right? And if I ask her, you know, hey, show me what the status is, she's going to be like, Oh well, you you can't look at the sausage. Right? I've got a machine, I got a thing that works for me, but I can't show it to you because it won't mm-hmm. work for you, right? So it's not something we can collaborate on. It's not something I can I can work with, or I, I can't take pieces of it. So then, if you go in and you say, "Okay, I'm going to use Salesforce to do this," because Salesforce is really good at building pipelines, and mm-hmm. I can build stages. And Salesforce is like, "All right, the first thing I need you to answer is how much money are you going to make from this director who works for you next week?" <laughs> like, well, that's a t- no money. I pay the guy. Like, I'm not right. going to make that. Doesn't it's a nonsensical question? Mm-hmm. But the frame of of CRM is so built around yeah. how much money are you going to make from them when mm-hmm. that even if that's what you're trying to do, but not in a sales way. Mm-hmm. It still doesn't work, right? It doesn't work for partnership deals. It doesn't work for well, right? Because I mean, it's a it's a pipeline, and if you if you don't have any way to say, well, this is what my pipeline looks like, then you know, it's it seems like a moot point. So they've all tried it. So they didn't mm-hmm. go to CRM. What they did is they said, why is this going to succeed? Where and now I'm going to blank on all of where contactually failed. Why is this going to succeed? Where you know the four or five other companies that vaguely resemble this, and the answer is contactually didn't really try to do this, right? Can actually built a, a better address book. Um, and that's what essentially all of them did. Um, and, uh, you know, but again, I, I failed to express to them in a way that they understood. Well, and that's why I was wondering if it was if it was actually in your messaging. There is a very good chance that that is the case, right? Yeah. Like I'm, I'm fully willing to say there was a way of explaining it and I did not discover that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do find the hardest part of the kind of business I build, which is I almost exclusively am interested in new markets. I, I, I don't like competition. I don't like doing something that somebody else you is You want to do a blue doing. ocean. Right. And, and part of that is, yeah. I, I don't think that I'm, I'm excellent at some things, but I'm not somebody who's like, I'm going to out-execute you or I'm going to, you know, it's much more like, look, five people are working on that. Why would I work on that? Like, that's going to get solved. Mm-hmm. I'm much more interested in what are the problems that I think are really important that no one else agrees are important. Mm-hmm. And Puppet was a good example of that, where like the industry as a whole thought the idea of Puppet was stupid. And I had multiple people tell me like, this is dumb. Why are you doing this? And it's like, oh, this is kind of interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and that speaks to, I think, the second problem, which is VCs really struggle with market creation. Every VC would like to take out both the market risk and the execution risk. Yeah, and of course, if you do that, that right? Like, <laughs> but of them... It wouldn't be gambling then, would it? <laughs> right. They're just yeah. uncomfortable with market... They're more. They're yeah. less comfortable with market risk than they are with other risks, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, look, if you could prove to me that this market could be built and would be large, then I would invest. And I'm like, if mm-hmm. I could prove that to you, then I wouldn't need your money. <laughs> you know, bootstrap, yeah, right. Right. If I could look back in time and say, "Look, the data is here," yeah. um, and, and ironically, the people who I'm, who I was kind of theoretically competing with, uh, which is like Dex and Clay and Folk, um, they have really big user bases and they're getting a lot of interestingness. But I think they're going to all hit that same asymptote that Contactually did in the generation before, mm-hmm. because I think they're solving. They're just a better way of solving that exact same problem. And I think mm-hmm. that's nice, but. 
I don't think it's anywhere near as valuable as what I was trying to solve yeah. because I just think it's a smaller problem. I, I don't think it's useful. I, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I tend to think things happen for a reason. And, you know, I mean, we're just, we're just, I mean, this may come right out of left field. I mean, it may just mean that you're not meant to build this right now. Maybe you'll be, maybe you'll be meant to build it in two years from now or three years. From yeah. Now. I spent a lot of time at the end thinking about, you know, what if I, you know, reduce my cost to zero by firing my team and trying to take it over? And it's like, well, you didn't write any of the code for this one. I, I wrote all the code for Puppet in the beginning. Right, right. And one of the things that became clear is like, I do not write code the way other people write code. And so it's, it's quite hard to onboard programmers in the code I wrote. And mm -hmm. so we decided as a team that I would focus on the non-programming parts. I would be the, you know, product manager, CEO, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so me taking over that code was going to be quite hard. Um, so we're just I, I looked at that really closely, and it was just like that's the wrong bet. Mm -hmm. um, and frankly, that's also still working very hard at a level that I can't work right now anyway. Right. It would be great if you're right, and you know this is something I work on. I, I think odds are um, I'm going to let the existing competition play out for a while, mm -hmm. and otherwise I'm going to keep an eye on founders who are trying who who see the same problem I see. Mm -hmm. And maybe one of them will pop up and I can, through some combination of giving right. them money and advice and encouragement, you know, get them to, you know, build the thing that I wanted to build. And they won't build it exactly like I did, but, no. uh, you know, but they'll be cl hopefully close enough. And, right. you know, I don't know. That, I think that's more likely right now. Yeah, got it. So, uh, as I said uh, in, in the introduction, you founded Puppet in 2005. Um and you served as the CEO for 11 and a half years before you were removed in September of 2016. Uh, and interesting, and I want to talk about that, but another really interesting uh, newsworthy point here is that Puppet was just, just announced being acquired by Perforce Software for an undisclosed amount. Uh, Perforce is a leader uh, in the DevOps industry, uh, and they were acquired by PE firm Clear Lake Capital Group in 2018. So... <laughs> there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to unpack here, but let's start at the beginning at, you know, where, how did you come up with this idea? And let's just go from there. Okay. Um, I, I was, I was swimming in it. Um, I, uh, I'm uh, one of the most formative pieces of technical literature in my life is a chapter in Larry Wall's Programming Pearl, where the intro to the chapter is, this chapter is about laziness and patience and hubris because this chapter is about good programming. And uh, I'm really lazy. And I think I'm the right kind of lazy. When I find myself doing something that, um, there's a great quote, I think, from Alan Shevers, I object to doing things that a computer can do. Mm -hmm. When I find myself doing essentially intellectually uninteresting work, I always ask, like, is there some way I can not, de not be mm -hmm. doing this? Um, and so really early in my career as a sysadmin, I, I found a lot of my work was like, take this thing and do it 50 times. And I'm like, why? No. Mm How -hmm. <laughs> about I do a different thing mm -hmm. where that thing, the output of that is that it does it 50 times. Right. And so really early in my job as a, as a sysadmin, I was rewarded in multiple ways. Um, I worked at a company that had like 30 call centers around the country. And each mm -hmm. call center had six copies of the same computer. And so I had a lot of duplication. And so the the reward for automation was incredibly high. Mm -hmm. And the um, our jobs were periodically to spin up, um, spin up new servers. And when I got there, the process of spinning them up was a literal printed out piece of paper with commands that you would type. And I was like, I know for a fact that I can take commands and put them in a shell script and just tell the shell script to run. Right, to tell, yeah, tell it to run. Why would I yeah. not do that? Right. And the answer is like, well, it's a little more complicated. You need to put in variables and things like that. I was like, well, I'm pretty sure they support that. So I went through this process of automating the setup of these servers. And I had this fantastic reward where prior to this call center, you had to spend a week on site setting everything up, like making mm -hmm. things actually work. And after this, this transition point, it's like, you probably didn't even have, a, as a sysadmin, even have to fly out there because it was all automated. Mm -hmm. But that one time, I had to fly out there and spend the week on site just in case it didn't work. Right. And it was Hawaii. So I had to spend a week in Hawaii. Oh, that's a real shame. But there was yeah. nothing to do because my automation actually worked. And so it was like this perfect immediate reward for, <laughs> man, I'm having, this is way, and the work yeah. of automation is way more fun than the work of typing the same command 50 times. Yeah, yeah. 
So after that, I was like, clearly I can't be the only person doing this, right? So I'm, you know, I kept like escalating and looking for, there's going to be other tools out there. Okay, I'm going to take that tool. Now what work remains? And I'd find a tool to do that. Okay, what work mm-hmm. remains? And eventually I hit some level where it's like, there is no tool to do this. It doesn't exist, yeah, right. Right? And so then I found a community of people who were struggling with the same problem. And that was the Lisa community and the config management community within Lisa. Um, And Lisa, uh, I think it's a, I think they stopped the conference now, but it was a system administration focused conference as part of the Usenix uh, community. And there were, you know, 15 to 20 people there, maybe eight who spent a lot of time on it, another 10 or so who were willing to argue about it once a year, (laughs) who, you know, cared about this in various ways. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and I tried every one of the tools. I was the only person in the room who was like, okay, let's say you're right. Um, and this is a group of people who are all you know, confident in themselves and they all assumed that they were right. And so I said, okay, well, let's assume you're right. I'm going to try to use your tool to automate my stuff. Mm-hmm. As opposed to just like, I'm right, I'm going to build something new. And I tried all their stuff. And it worked. Right? Yeah. It all had some, some sort of problem. And in the majority mm-hmm. of cases, the problem it had wasn't necessarily technical. The problem it had was this thing is really hard to use, right? Like the the process of getting started on this is like step one, get an engineering degree from MIT. No, that's, if your goal is to fix your problem, then great. But if your goal is to make it so that this problem goes away in the world, you need something that is incredibly easy to get started with. You need something that has this really smooth slope from, I just want to solve this teeny little problem to, you know, I I want to automate the universe, right? There needs to be a, 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 a curve over time and everything else was just way too complicated. So I distinctly remember asking this group of like 20 people at some point, like how many here, like raise your hand if you've written your own automation tool and all but like three hands go up. I was like, all right, now keep your hand up if you've used anybody else's automation tool. No, it was uh, keep your hand up if anybody outside of your organization is also using your automation tool and all but two hands went down. It was like, look, (laughs) you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't do what you're doing, but I am saying that what you're doing is not going to help anybody else. Got it. Right? Other than possibly academically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, at that point still, was like, I don't want to start a business. I had never started a business before. My dad had run his own construction company his whole life. And it, it's hard work. It's, you know, uh, now working in construction is much harder work in many ways than working in, mm-hmm. in technology. But um, so at that point, I went and joined Blue Star Communication. Nope, not Blue Star. That was where I did a bunch of the work. I joined Blade Logic. Mm. Oh. Um, and mm-hmm. I was like, I'll, I will help them build the product that I know can and should exist. Mm-hmm. And within a few months, it was like, oh, this is not going to happen. So I left Blade Logic and I was like, well, I guess I've tried everything else and mm-hmm. I don't want to go back to being a sysadmin. And I thought at the time I had some money saved up, mm-hmm. but relatively soon after that, the IRS disagreed with me and said, actually, you have no money saved up. And I was like, huh. so I decided <laughs> to try to build a tool that I had this like idea for how I might do it, yeah. And I had some time, and I didn't have a job, um, and so we lived on my wife's generous, uh, generous twenty six thousand dollars a year graduate student Oy stipend, <laughs> right? I quit a hundred and ten thousand dollars a year job, yeah. uh, and you know, so that's kind of that's how it got started, and then right. I spent you know a year or so like coding in obscurity, right, trying to build something. Mm-hmm. By the end of that year, I had enough of a, a prototype that I was willing to share it publicly. And okay. so there was this. Uh, so you had an MVP. Re- yep, really seminal uh, talk I gave at Bay Lisa in I want to say November of 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by early 2006, I had my first customer, and that was all consulting. This is all open source, and there's lots of things about business model and stuff that I can talk about, but I'll I'll skip for now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I was you know making money on Puppet, and you know and kind of I was off the races at that point. That's fantastic. So. How, how did you, when did you go out for your, you know, first round of institutional capital? How many rounds did you have to, to hit that, you know, $87 million in funding? I never did go out for that first round. Um, somebody tracked me down at an event. I had talked to a few investors, but I had okay. never found an investor who I would take money from and who would yeah. also give me money. Yep. Um, That's one of the I, common things I hear from founders. Right. Finding I the right some investors right who seemed really partner. great. And yeah. I reached out to them and they were like, mm-hmm. crickets. Yeah. And then I ran into some investors who were like, you know, I felt like I was talking to laughing sharks when I was talking to them. I was like, no, I don't, I only want to have another conversation with you, much less, you know, figure it out. Um, but eventually, uh, Panit Agarwal from True Ventures tracked me down and said, hey, I want to invest. And I was like, oh, you know, that seems kind of weird, but okay. And a lot of investors <laughs> say, you know, we should talk. And he said, we should talk on Monday. And 
um, you know, there was a whole long story there, but, um, uh-huh. you know, yeah, eventually they ended up leading. It was very strange. They were like, we would like to give you $1.75 million on a $2 million round. And I'm like, I don't, shouldn't, if you're in finance, shouldn't you be better at math than that? Because that's not how that works. Well, but you're going to find other rich people who can also contribute. And I was like, I do not know any rich people. You are the only rich person I know. <laughs> and he was like, I just started this job. I'm not rich. And I was like, yeah. well, I don't know what to do now. So we ended up raising two and a quarter that time. Okay. Um, brought in, I think it was just one other mm-hmm. uh, kind of independent institutional. Mm-hmm. They put in a half a million. And so that that's how that went. And then the second person who came in was a former Kleiner partner. Kleiner mm-hmm. led the next two rounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, VMware, <clears throat> Kleiner led the first round, the whole round. The second round, they didn't want to take the whole round. So Cisco and VMware joined uh, as a small part of that round. Right. And then VMware led the next two rounds after that. So in Very, each round, yeah. I got you know one person contributing to everything except the first round, or to each round who then led mm-hmm. the, the the following round. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you grew the organization from a talent standpoint. That's a really open ended question. I, um, mm. I think for me, I, I think the most important thing we did was we brought in people who were users. We brought in people who were in the community who were passionate about Puppet. Yeah, I love it. And we were way more interested in, are you going to work really hard to help us succeed than do you have the mm-hmm. credentials that say that this is a good mm-hmm. idea? Um, you know, whether it was people who were in, you know, ended up running our community organization, mm-hmm. building it from scratch, people who were sysadmins working for us. You know, we had a lot of sysadmins in non-sysadmin roles because sysadmins knew the problems. They knew how to talk right. about it. They knew how to train our customers. They knew how to, especially one of the things we did really, really well was we'd hire um, and this doesn't sound like a thing, but we'd hire outgoing sysadmins and put them in services roles mm-hmm. and say like, you know, <laughs> yeah, some of these stories are ridiculous. We had a guy, you know, who'd never been on a plane before. I mean, our first flight was we sent him to India, um, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, so we, once they were unleashed with customers, they were really, really good at talking about what they got out of Puppet. They had mm-hmm. all been Puppet users in the past. Mm-hmm. They were really good at not selling it, mm-hmm. but telling a story in a way that you walked away convinced. Um, right. That worked incredibly well. Um, frankly, a lot of the other parts were really, really hard. I got really lucky in hiring my head of sales. I hired the best salesperson in Oregon, and he stayed with us for seven years or six years, and mm-hmm. he was he was the perfect player coach. Every venture back startup wants to hire a person who will carry a bag for the first two years That's and right. then build a team around and then, them after that. Of course, that. right, yeah. Those people don't exist, except Scott Campbell was Well, like, that a person. few of them exist. Right, they're, exactly. They're somebody, yeah. They're just so rare, right? Yeah. He was fantastic. Um, and so between services people generating revenue and mm-hmm. Scott doing the selling, um, you know, those those hit really, really well. Mm-hmm. Strangely, on the technology side, on the programmer side, I always struggled. I, I never had a programming leader. I never had a person running the product or engineering groups until the year I was fired that I had a good relationship with. Why do you think that is, Luke? Um, the, I mean, the good relationship with, that's the important point yeah, you're yeah. making. I think, um, I think fundamentally, executive hiring is incredibly hard. Yeah. Um, frankly, I, I grew up on a hippie farm. I, I kind of feel like maybe executives shouldn't exist, and the whole idea behind them is um, essentially a form of wealth extraction that, uh, you know, puts the frontline workers down at the expense mm-hmm. of, you know, we, we all know the wealth inequity that's going on right now. Right. Of course. We all know how the money you can lend at the top and mm-hmm. we know who it's the expense of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the executives have not gotten a thousand times more productive in the no. last 50 years, right? No. If anything, I'd, I'd argue that the professionalism of executives has dropped precipitously in the last 50 years while their income has gone up precipitously. Right, right. Um, so I think that we're frankly in an international crisis of executive quality right now. Um but a lot of it too is like, you know, when you hear me say that, you think that guy's probably not going to be very good at hiring executives. And you would be right. Um, I, I struggled to find people that I could work well with. I, I think a lot of it is every founder, no matter what, you must compromise. And you'll read all these stories about like, oh, the one thing you can never do is compromise on your people. And those stories are poisonous lies. Because the truth of the matter is zero people you hire are perfect. Zero of them. Oh, right. Right? And you know that, and I know that, and everybody in the world knows that. So all the stories about how you never, ever hire and uh, compromise on people, 
Those stories are pernicious lies, and they make all they do is make you doubt yourself. I don't ever tell so, people that because I don't right, have. But, but I, I can find you fifty articles yeah, right. right away that, yeah. that would say that, right? Right. We all know that. Oh, you know, A's higher A's and B's higher C's. Like, okay, well, you know, you you you, you know, you, the uh, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know, right? You just you know, you you need <laughs> right. So 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 the challenge I think for every founder is how do, how what are the right compromises to make? That's right. And for me in particular, I'm a weirdo, and what I know now that I didn't know then is a significant chunk of that weirdness is I'm autistic, and. I have a bunch of beliefs. I have a bunch of uh, things that I want. And one of the questions is always like, do I bring in somebody? Do I do I look extra hard to find a person who agrees with those things, who I can work with on those things? Or do I accept that that person is going to run the organization differently than I would, mm-hmm. but they're good at their jobs and they'll do fine and stuff like that. And in some areas, I was able to get exactly what I wanted. You know, accounting and finance is an example of somebody who I had a really good relationship with somebody and she was able to do the work the way they wanted her to do. And when when we had disagreement, she was willing to come in line with what I wanted. Right. Um, I was just never able to find a product leader who had the right combination of, I've got enough talent, I can communicate effectively with Luke, and I'm willing to do what Luke wants me to do instead of what I want to do. And, and the problem with me as a founder is like, you've, you've got to, you've got to be on my boat and I'm not going to join on your boat. Right. Right. That's very important. What you just said. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder, did you, I mean, were you doing, were you going out and looking on your own? I mean, how are you finding people? For most executives, I hired a recruiter. Okay, good. But the question is, given what I know of that business, which, you know, I started in 1992. I mean, do you feel like you hired the wrong recruiter that they weren't able to get to knowing what you needed, what would work, the kind of cultural fit with you? Those things are so important. And they're, you know, in in a low barrier to entry industry, you know, how do you find the top 2%? Those are the people that should, everybody should be working with. Yeah, I mean... Again, because I'm autistic, I, I just the whole framing of top two percent I don't agree with, right? Like, it's um, and it's just like the whole idea of there being an A player I don't agree with, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody else's A player is my failure, right? How, how many times mm-hmm. have we seen? Well, that that's right. It's an A player for you, not for someone else, right? See a dominating athlete go somewhere else and just completely fail. That's right. Like, well, did they suddenly become a crappy athlete? Of course right. not. There's <laughs> right? no such thing as a, a as an A player. It's, it's, it's limited based on what your needs are. That's what makes it an A player for you. Right. And so I think for me, the, the biggest problem is that I, I didn't know enough mm-hmm. and I wasn't brave enough. Yeah. Well, um, first time founder, that's not uncommon. Right. And, so I and wanted the way to talk I didn't know this. enough yeah. is I just didn't know enough about what was necessary to work with mm-hmm. me. Right. How, what is the definition of a successful working relationship with me? Mm-hmm. And I, and today, I think I could express that pretty effectively. Mm-hmm. Now, I would still have a hit rate that was not 100%, but I think I could express no, that No one has a 100% hit rate. Um, and then the, I wasn't brave enough, was essentially, at, at some point, you kind of say, like, do I hire mainstream people who have demonstrated success um, and are de-risked in multiple ways? Mm-hmm. Or do I keep looking until I hire, f- find somebody who is de-risked in that way, but also fits my like communication goals, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that could take three years, right? Mm-hmm. And no, we all know we can't afford to do that. right? Or do I hire somebody who is not canonically successful, but fits the other criteria of, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they can get there and I can communicate well with them and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think far too often, I picked the canonically successful person um, who was honestly in everyone's cases, they were good at their jobs. My board loved almost all of them, right? A couple mm-hmm. of cases I just had straight misses, right? Like that happens. Mm-hmm. But like I ground myself into a nub trying to get two of my executives to succeed. And they were my two most expensive, highest power, most visible, most famous executives. And a board member took me aside and said, Your ability to succeed as a CEO is going to be determined by your ability to get them to succeed. In other words, I'm going to fire you if these guys don't work out. That's right. Right. If you can't get them to work, then you're the wrong person to run this company. Right. Um, and so, I should I should have considered firing them early on when it was mm-hmm. obvious that I didn't have the right relationship with them, mm-hmm. and I was and I and I wasn't willing to um, yeah. because I, I didn't even consider it because it was so obvious that if I try to fire them, my board's going to go, well, someone's going to get fired. But 
Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, and sure enough, that's, you know, what happens in there after. Um, and so that's just a case of like, I hired people who should have worked out and if they'd had a different boss, odds are they would have worked out, but because I was their boss Mm -hmm. and because of how I work and frankly, because the organization that I had built that they walked into, right. Because it's not just organ rejection by me. Mm-hmm. You're, you're in an organization that, that I built that is a reflection of me. And mm-hmm. therefore, they were a struggle to fit into the organization too. So, um, you know, I don't know. That's a very long way of answering, but hopefully I answered your question. Yeah, well, I mean, it's something that if we, you know, if we had hours, we could talk more about, right? Um, mm-hmm. But, but you know, you you make a lot of points. It's, you know, determining what is the best fit for you um, out of a candidate is it's, it's not an exact science. Um, I know when, you know, when I work with companies, you know, I walk in with a, uh, a list, uh, that I send in advance of 45 to 50 questions. And, and it's in those questions where we start to learn what do we need for this, you know, X, Y, Z role, whatever that might be. Um, and still it might not be a perfect science because we might learn after we've seen a couple of candidates, you know what, I think this might not work and here's why, especially if it's a new position, right? I had a really great experience that fundamentally changed how I thought about this mm-hmm. with a, an architect. Okay. And it, it was it was the first time where I had somebody who fully inhabited their expertise and there was no confusion about this person being in charge this person being good at their job and this person mm-hmm. owning the thing. Mm-hmm. But because architecture is, a, is essentially a, a service role, right? Like you've got to please your customer. You've got to build mm-hmm. something that your customer wants you to mm-hmm. build. Mm-hmm. He also fully took on the idea of like, my job is to build something that you love. My right. job is to hear you, right? Is to really, really listen to you and to satisfy your needs. And it helped me see that my executives did not see that as their responsibility. Mm-hmm. Right. One of the major problems with executives is we tell them that they are amazing and they are special and they deserve a half million, a million, five million dollars a year, yeah. and they shouldn't have to listen to other people. <laughs> and the most powerful executives I had did not believe that their job was to make me happy. And that sounds egotistical, but what I really mean is like I'm the person, I'm the force that that aligns the metal filings in the business, right? I I am the gravitational pull that everything else needs to line around mm-hmm. and that alignment creates success for the business. That's right. Um, and when an executive says, well, actually, I'm really good. I don't need to align with you, right? I, I've got my own gravitational body. Mm-hmm. And so that's what was happening. Mm-hmm. And it took me too long to realize that I had too many executives. And, and you need some of that, right? Your executives do need to have a bit of their own gravitational bo- pull. Right. But, but I had people who were pushing too much of it. And when I yeah. would say, I have an opinion about this, or I want you to tell me about mm-hmm. what you're doing here and I want to go through it. And they would right. say, why are, why are you micromanaging me? Why are you in my business? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, because your business is my business, right? Like, right. And, and there's so much, I think, incredibly dysfunctional advice around this topic of micromanagement, around this topic of delegation, right? I mean, how many people, there's so many times where I see the advice of great managers get out of the way, great mm-hmm. leaders get out of the way. I'm sorry, the definition of leadership is providing direction, right? You tell me that you're going to get out of the way. Like, how do you delegate leadership? (laughs) Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's nonsensical. Yeah. And, 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 you know, when you talk about alignment, you know, that is, uh, it's so great to hear you say that because that is step one in what it is to build a town centric organization. And that is alignment at the executive committee, right? Alignment in your business strategy, alignment in your vision. And that doesn't mean, you know, you're, you're, when I, you know, when I ask you the question, what's your vision um, for this company, that I get exactly necessarily the same words, but I get the same answer from everybody. They get that we all are, you know, in this boat rowing together. And if we're not all, we, if we're not all rowing together, we're not going to get to our destination. Right. And, okay. and, and some of the dysfunctions that look like not rowing together are really easy to detect. Yes. But some of them are surprisingly, like I found them surprisingly hard to detect. Mm-hmm. Um, like in particular, people's kind of need to defend autonomy. There are lots of cases where demanding autonomy on the part of a manager or leader is really important and it's really valuable. And then there are lots of other cases where the exact same word and the exact same behavior is a source of extreme cataclysmic dis- dysfunction. And and, and even today, I, I'm confident I would not successfully differentiate them all, you mm-hmm. know, often enough. Um, but at the time, especially, I was, you know, I, I was trying to figure out how, you know, as a leader, 
my role as leader was a series of ratchets. And it's like, okay, I can build the thing. Okay, I can hire a single person. Okay, I can hire 10 people. Okay, I can manage a team. Okay, I can manage people who have them who themselves have employees. Okay, I can have I can manage a team who have whose whose direct reports are managers. Okay, right. now I can, right? And so each of these ratchets is a complete change in my job, right? And if, if you think about like each person below you as a as a joint it's like me to you, there's no, it's like, it's a direct limb, right? But me to you, to your employee, there's a joint in there. And I, I want to get your employees to do the right thing. But the only way to do that is I can only manipulate the person I'm talking to, right? And then like manipulating through a joint is harder. And the bigger the organization, the more joints you're trying to manipulate people through, right? Man- um, managing individual contributors is not the same thing as managing managers. It's a different, it's a right. different strategy. It's a different type of leadership, you know, managing individual contributors. If you have got a bunch of stars on your team, they're going to make you look fantastic, like a hero. Yep. Then what happens if you move up the food chain to second line management? And now you don't have that bunch of stars doing all the work for you. Yep. And so this, this was a time where I was trying to learn that skill set, um, and also, and, and so a lot of the terminology, a lot of the wording we use to talk about what it's like to manage executives, what it's like to manage large teams can be, I think it's helpful to other people, but it ended up being right. poison to me. And again, I, I you know, I, this goes back to my autism where like the words that other people use don't always mean the same thing to me as they do to those mm-hmm. other people. There's a bunch of intuitions that 90% of the world shares because 90% of the world is holistic, is neurotypical. And so you can use a bunch of words and everyone around you be like, yeah, I know what you mean. And they will know what you mean. <laughs> but when I hear those words, I'm like, yeah, I know what you mean. And different. I do not know what you mean. Right. And conversely, I can use words and I'm like, I know exactly what I mean. And there's a small group of people who can hear that and go, got it. But a large, the majority of people will hear that and go, I think, I think he just told us we were all morons. I'm like, what? No, that's. And so it was, you know, basic miscommunication about the definition of words That's got right. in the way That's right. of, again, like, what does delegation mean? And I, I like to challenge people now and they say like, you know, uh, it's really important to delegate. I'm like, okay, but how? How do you delegate? Right? Everyone knows micromanagement is bad. So how do you, what is the mechanical difference between delegation and micromanagement? Because if you tell me you delegate and you never check in, I'm going to call you a bad manager, right? If you say, this is your job and I never want to talk about this ever again, like Mm -hmm. that's not management. That's not Mm -hmm. leadership. That's right. Right? So you've got to delegate, but then you've got to have this feedback loop that says, how did it go? Mm -hmm. So can you really mechanically tell me the difference between your delegation with feedback and micromanagement, right? And if one person's delegation with feedback is another person's micromanagement. And, And I've had executives who are like, if you ever ask me about any project you've ever assigned to me, that's micromanagement. And if other people who are like, if you aren't checking in on me, on me weekly, then I'm afraid I'm off the trail. Well, and, and that's, you know, to my point in, in, in building, let's say, a position description, what you want, those are really important things to know. Right. Like, what does this mean to this person before we consider hiring them? Right. Yep. I didn't know those things then, and I hope I know them now, but certainly I, I, I know here be dragons, and hopefully yep. I can at least map the territory next time. Gotcha. So uh, we have a little bit of time left, and I want to I dig just a little bit into, um, you know, you're being fired as CEO. Um, you know, you're not the first CEO uh, founder to be fired, and you won't oh, be I've the heard. last, okay? So, um, and there have been two CEOs since you. Yep. Um, the one, the interim one, well, it wasn't interim, but the one that was there after you, and then the one who's currently uh, CEO, who's a woman who I'm was, you know, just think is the cat's meow, right? I love that mm-hmm. to see that. So Man. tell me a little bit about that interim, the CEO that replaced you. Yeah. So in 2014, summer 2014, I raised a large round of funding. Um, I came very close to selling the business that summer. Um, mm-hmm. I had a deal and uh, it was with a subsidiary and the parent company cl- kiboshed the deal. Uh, I had a, yeah. I had an agreement in hand, and then the agreement got rescinded, and we ended up raising around instead. Mm-hmm. Um, that summer, I realized I just couldn't do it anymore. Okay. I was done. I remember talking to one of my investors and saying, "You know, look, I I, I think I'm done." And he said, or, "Or no, we were talking about the deal. We were talking about whether to sell or not." And he's like, "I think you should keep going." And I spontaneously broke into tears, and the just the idea of continuing to do mm-hmm. this. Overwhelmed me. Yes, obviously. And, you know, spent the next six months or so talking to my family and thinking and, you know, like reflecting on my reality. And mm-hmm. it was just like, this is not for me anymore. I'm not happy. I'm not succeeding. I'm right. not thriving. So, the end of 2014, I told my board that I was done. 
and that we needed to find a replacement. Um, and this is where I think the critical mistake was made. I think the board should have done the search. And if you'd have told me that at the time, I would have flipped out and said, no, I want control. But what I realized in retrospect is I, I talked to 10 possible candidates for CEO and I couldn't convince any of them that I even really wanted to leave the business. Mm-hmm. And I think I struggled to walk this line between, mm-hmm. on the one hand, this is an amazing business. This is a fantastic business that you should love to run. On the other hand, I really got to leave. Mm-hmm. And, and I couldn't do both of those successfully. And so I did much better at talking about what a great, what a great business it was. And, and I think people just didn't believe me that I wanted to leave it. And, and there's mm-hmm. something about me, everyone thinks that I'm incredibly passionate about exactly what I'm doing. Like everyone's like, oh, this is your baby. And, and obviously you adore DevOps. And when you leave Puppet, you're going to go to another DevOps thing. And I'm like, no, one of the reasons I'm leaving Puppet is so I never have to talk or think about DevOps ever again. <laughs> but people don't, there's something about my, my ability, there's something about how I work that people see lots of deep emotional commitment on my part. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, that is not present. Um, and so I couldn't, you know, I spent six months trying to find a CEO and could not find, could not get, could not even realistically get somebody to take me seriously. Got it. The closest one uh, was another woman who was a fantastic, amazing CEO, would have been an amazing fit mm-hmm. and just couldn't convince her. And I think with her, it was some combination of I had given up on finding a CEO at that point and was beginning to, tra- to change my search to COO. It's mm. like, okay, I can't, I, I need new executives and this person needs to hire them and I can't keep av- avoiding this problem because mm-hmm. the worst thing in the world you can do is replace your entire executive team and then hire a new boss for them, right? right? Like, uh, yeah, of course. What you want to do is hire the boss, right? Of course. And, yeah. and I was very conscious of that. And I had a, it was time to do another refresh on my exec team. And I, I really wanted to bring somebody else to do that refresh because that, that's what makes sense. So it's like, I can't, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep looking. So I'll switch. Hopefully that person will be easier to, easier to find. Um, and unfortunately, this, this woman who, uh, again, amazing, amazing uh, CEO, you know, some combination of it was a complicated conversation because I was going through this transition. And, but I just remember at some point being like, being at her house and just like, no, really, I need you to understand. I have to leave. I have to get out. And I think she finally finally believed that I wanted to leave, but it took four or five conversations. Um, and even then she, you know, turned me down. Um, and I then started looking for CEO. I made three offers to the people that I talked to and all three of them rejected me. And my recruiter said, look, there's only one person left on the list. And if you don't hire him, I'm firing you as a client and you have to start over. Right. At this point, we're a year into the search. Mm-hmm. And, oh my God. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I've, there are multiple people on the team that still, you know, we're kind of, we're floundering a little bit because I'm kind of busy. My team knows mm-hmm. I'm doing this. Um, and I took a flyer on the fourth guy. I basically was like, you know, the board has my back mm-hmm. and I think he has the talent and I don't know if we'll get along, but he's really different culturally. Mm. And maybe that difference, like my head of sales for seven years and I are really, really different, but we worked well enough together. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps that he worked for honestly psychotic people in the past. And so just, you know, being autistic was like, oh, this is easy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I took a flyer on him. Basically, I was like, we'll try him. We'll see if it works out. And if not, then we'll do what everyone does, right? right. At, at best, probably he'll bring in a couple of great people. And then if it doesn't work out, then we'll bring in somebody else and we'll start again, right? But I have to start again anyway. So I might mm-hmm. as well take a flight. And we did our diligence, right? It wasn't like we just literally didn't talk to him and just like, well, whatever. Right, we did our diligence. Um, unfortunately, he couldn't start for five months after I hired him. So oh, now, shit. you know, right? So I, I, I tell my board at the end of 14, and now it's May of 16 Oy. when he finally starts. Yeah. Right? By July, it's clear he's not the right guy. Oh, it's clear he's not going to work. He's not a yeah. fit. He's not a fit in multiple ways. Okay. And frankly, I think he managed to convince my board. I think he knew it. And I think uh, he managed to convince my board that I was holding him back, that I was the problem. And before I could move on him, he moved on me, <laughs> which is a story as old as time, right? Yeah, right. Um, and my board flew up to fire me. My, my investors did. And the words they used, these are guys I've known for 10 years. They had never used those words in the past, right? These are all completely new ways of framing what's going on in the business. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt. And I knew they'd had a conversation with, uh, with the CEO. With mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think he, did, he got me fired. Got it. Um, okay. And honestly, I don't mind the being fired as much. I, I was trying to leave anyway. I really, really minded them not trusting me about, whether, about him not being the right fit. Yeah. And over the next two years, he spent $50 million. He brought in not just a new executive team. He brought in a new layer of executives. That's when Yvonne joined... Yeah. She fired like eight executives, didn't replace a single one because mm-hmm. they were all dead weight. 
right? They were all people who, yeah. I'm sure they had value. I'm sure they, they did mm-hmm. things. But we were not a company that needed an SVP of strategy, <laughs> right? Like, how much are you paying that person, right? And then, right. Then how, how, many, how many layers person, do we really need? Right. And so Yvonne just took a ton of cost out of the business by just saying, like, we just don't need this many executives. Right. Um, so, so he spent a ton of money, made no progress. Right. Um, we immediately went to like 30 to 40% rolling attrition under him, especially. Right. And it's one thing to say, like, oh, well, the product people didn't like working for a sales guy. No, in the sales department where he worked in his area, we just got slaughtered. There was no retention. Yeah. There was no trust. Oh, dear. Um, yeah. And then he, he left at the end of 18. Uh, mm-hmm. took a job at a public company that where he mm-hmm. got a $10 million signing bonus. And mm-hmm. I'm sure he'll be a CEO for the rest of his life and will never have to actually succeed and could just bounce from, you know, mediocre executive role to mediocre executive There are a lot role. of people like that out there, Luke. It's just shocking. Yep. But, you know, it is what it is. So, so well, then, but Yvonne has clearly done a very good job and she's gotten your, she's gotten the company, your baby, you know, acquired. Yeah. And is that, is know, that what you saw for the company in acquisition? Did you see an IPO? Like, I, for most of it, I just didn't think about it that way. Yeah. Um, I, the way I think about it is about, we had a mission and that mission mm-hmm. was not about making money. That mission was not about right. the specific status of our C-Corp. That, that's right. That mission was about affecting the world. That's right. And, because the, the rest will come. Right. We had an acquisition offer in 2012 mm-hmm. and, um, and it was a good offer. I, um, would have made more money from that offer than I made from this acquisition. Yeah. Um, which 10 years earlier, right? Um, but I turned Woulda, it down coulda. because one of the things that happens with the most acquisitions, and this was a strategic acquisition by a much, much larger company, and so we were mm-hmm. going to be absorbed into the business, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, very rarely does the mission of the acquired company survive, yeah. right? So the thing right. I was trying to do, I was not convinced would would continue to, to be done. And I felt, felt like we had not yet had the impact on the world that we needed to have. Mm-hmm. And by 2014, I felt like we had. And so what I considered this acquisition because, and my guess is by 2012, we had, and I just didn't see it yet. Yeah. And by 14, it was obvious. Like the whole world knew this, this change, right? And they would not say Puppet made this change, but they would say mm-hmm. the, world, the, the, the world that we had built Puppet into was a completely different world than, one that I, than the one that I had started it in, you know, 10 years earlier. Um, and so... For me, it was about that change. Um, mm-hmm. And the two things that I set the company out to do were I wanted I wanted the job of the sysadmin to be fundamentally different. I wanted the work to be strategic, high-level mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. I wanted sysadmins to not be sitting there typing the same command a thousand mm-hmm. times, but mm-hmm. to be at the table in the same way a developer is at the table, in the same right. way that a marketing person is at the table <laughs> helping to make the decisions. I want the sysadmin to be at the table. Mm-hmm. And I want them to be trusted to build tools for themselves. Right. If you Got look it. at, you know, because again, I'd been in operations before this. Most operations companies were founded by business people, and they were sold to business people. And so, as this had been, you were constantly being told, "Hey, I bought this product for you to solve your problem." Mm-hmm. And you're like, "You literally have no idea what my problem is." And by the way, the product you bought doesn't solve that problem or the problem you bought it to solve. Mm-hmm. And that's why, especially at the time, the vast majority of enterprise IT products fail. And it was because the users, the people at the front line, who's Theoretically, you're trying to help. Those users were not involved in the discussion. Right. And, and if you look since Puppet, I'm not going to say that this is entirely about me, but I think a lot of people went, if Luke can do it, I can definitely do it. Mm-hmm. And so we have so many more sysadmin founders now. And investors trust yeah. sysadmins to start companies and to build products for other sysadmins. And I see mm-hmm. it you know, all over the place, and, and I love it. And those are the Great. two things I wanted to do. And by 2014, it was clear that we had done those things. And Good. so from there, it just becomes like, you know, once I left the company, it became a primarily a financial conversation for me right. and not a, right. this has never been my baby, right? This was, again, why did I start Puppet? Because I was unemployed, I was bored, and I didn't want to be a sysadmin anymore, <laughs> right? There's no, now I, I had a mission and I, I did all the right mm-hmm. work, right? I had a, like, what makes this successful? Mm-hmm. But it wasn't like, this is what I was born to do, right? right? It was right. nothing like that. Um, mm-hmm. it, for all that I sound like that all the time when I talk about it, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know how to not sound like that. That's okay. Well, with that, we are coming to we are coming to the edge of the cliff of time. Um, so um, you know, Luke Canise, founder and executive chairman of Puppet. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I could talk to you for another hour, but we don't have time. I really enjoyed the discussion <laughs> too. Thanks, Carol. My pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevation.com slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag authentically successful. I love seeing your posts and great suggestions. Lastly, we are regularly putting out new episodes and content. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, please subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to our website, verticalelevation.com, or follow me on LinkedIn. This is Carol Schultz. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.